preach we multiply to each of you this morning in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. It's a great joy to be with you again. If you would take your copy of God's word and turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Let me breathe a word of prayer and then we'll consider God's word together this morning. We give you thanks and praise for the privilege of another day and for the blessings that are ours in the Lord Jesus Christ who is our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. Would you cause our worship to go even higher now as you deepen our understanding of your word? Help us to lay aside all filthiness and rampant wickedness so that we may receive with gentleness the implanted word that is able to save our souls. Then help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, lest we deceive ourselves. Use me to speak the word faithfully and clearly, and we reserve for you the highest praise and full credit for the fruit that shall come from this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 11, beginning at verse 1, reads, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. When, when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend, at, a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Amen. Jesus was in some un disclosed location, praying. As Jesus prayed, the disciples watched and waited. When he concluded his prayers, one of the disciples, no doubt speaking for the rest, said, Lord, you know that John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. Would you teach us how to pray? This is the foundation, the setting, the occasion of the text. Everything Jesus says in verses 2 through 13 rest on this anonymous disciple's question in verse 1. I want to consider with you this morning what Jesus teaches us about believing prayer, but let's begin with the disciple's request that prompts the Lord's instruction. Consider, first of all, by way of introduction, when this request was made. It, it was made after the disciples had observed Jesus in prayer. The repeated references to the prayer life of Jesus in Luke's gospel alone are sufficient to make the point that Jesus was a man of prayer. 
There was something about the prayer life of Jesus that moved and motivated the disciples, and it should have the same effect on you and me. One of the primary reasons, friends, why we should take prayer more seriously in our walk with Christ is because Christ himself prayed. Jesus, the blending of deity and humanity, the meeting place of time and eternity, the intersection between heaven and earth, prayed. And if Jesus, the Son of the living God, found it necessary to pray, how much more do you and I need to pray? Consider also that this request is made to Jesus. That's obvious, but it's important. If you want to learn a skill or craft, you go to a qualified expert to teach you, and this is what the disciples are doing here. Jesus is the expert in prayer. Being fully human, he knows all about offering prayer. Being fully divine, he knows all about answering prayer. So the best place to go to learn to pray is simply to the feet of Jesus. Also consider the uniqueness of this request. Luke 11 verse 1 is the only place in the Gospels where the disciples ever directly ask Jesus to teach them anything. And they do not ask him to teach them how to preach or how to do miracles. If you read the two previous chapters, you will see that Jesus sends out his disciples with power to preach and to do miracles. And yet, even though they are preaching and working wonders, the boys apparently still needed to learn how to pray. This says to us, that prayer is one of the most difficult things for disciples to learn, and it is one of the most difficult things for disciples of Jesus to learn because it is one of the most important lessons for disciples of Jesus to learn. So I would commend you to join this anonymous disciple in making the request of the Lord today. Lord, teach us to pray. One more point by way of introduction. Notice the manner in which the request is made in verse 1. Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. There is no other reference or record of John the Baptist teaching his disciples to pray, but Luke 11 verse 1 is sufficient for us to conclude that he did it. It was the custom of rabbis to teach their disciples how to pray. They would teach their style, their formula, their system of prayer. This may be what the disciples had in mind. It seems that they have the right request from the wrong perspective. They are expecting Jesus to teach them the Jesus style, the Jesus formula of prayer. And in response to their request, Jesus does not teach them a technique. He teaches them a truth. The truth of the text is this, God answers prayer. I don't know of a greater truth I can share with you that will more motivate us to take prayer seriously than that simple fact. God answers prayer. There are two fundamental reasons why, as disciples of Jesus Christ, we should be devoted to prayer. First, because the Word of God commands it, and secondly, because, hold on to your seat, it works. God hears and answers prayer. As we will see in just a moment, God is not like some sleepy friend. God is willing to hear and able 
to answer prayer. And in light of that fact, Jesus teaches the disciples to pray with reverence for God, with dependence upon God, and with confidence in God. First, Jesus instructs the disciples to pray with reverence for God. Luke 11, verses 2 through 4, records what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. It is probably more appropriate to call it the model prayer or the disciples' prayer. This is only the Lord's Prayer in the sense that he taught it, not that he prayed it. This is not a prayer that Jesus himself could ever pray because Jesus never committed any sin for which he would need to say, forgive us our debts as we forgive those indebted to us, and thank God for that. You cannot be a sinner and a savior at the same time. Jesus Christ is qualified to be our savior because he committed no sin. The prayer before us is a model of prayer for the disciples to practice. It is a condensed version of the model prayers recorded in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. But as Jesus presents it in this context, in response to the disciples' request, I believe specifically here what Jesus is trying to communicate is that the God who answers prayer is, is God. That is, God is not merely the man upstairs. God is the sovereign holy, just, righteous, good, faithful, omnipotent God. And when we pray, we should pray God-sized, God-exalting, God-saturated prayers. Verses 2 through 4, then this model, first of all, commends us to pray simply to God. When you pray, say, Father. Some translations bring over the language of Matthew 6 and 9, our Father in heaven, but literally here, Jesus just instructs the guys to address God as Father. Father in heaven affirms both the, the, the eminence and the transcendence of God. Father focuses on the nearness, the eminence, the closeness of God. St. Teresa of Avila wrote that she had problems getting past this opening invocation of the model prayer. She called it lovely land that she never wanted to leave. And may we have the same attitude when we consider the fact that you and I have been blessed in Christ to have the glorious privilege of bringing our needs and hurts and cares and joys and desires and burdens and challenges to God in prayer, directly to God. Not a patron saint, not a priest in a booth, not a guardian angel, God. And in Christ, we are blessed with the privilege of not only going to God in prayer, but when we go to God, we don't have to go to God like some desperate be beggar going to a wealthy stranger asking for a big request. We can go to God as confident children praying to a loving Father. In the Old Testament, there were various names for God by which the people addressed God, but they rarely addressed God as Father. Here, as Jesus instructs the disciples, he does not present any of the Old Testament names for God and tells them simply to approach God as Father. And he can so teach the disciples this way because it is Christ himself that makes intimate communion with God the Father possible. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. 
Since, since we have so great a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession of faith. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who has been tempted at every point as we are yet without sin. So let us with confidence come then before the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need. We can pray directly to God, but then Jesus quickly teaches us that we should pray about things that bring glory to God. Even though we are privileged to come directly to God in prayer, he says that we must not rush into God's presence with a grocery list of personal requests. When we go to God in prayer, the glory of God should come before our needs. We should pray about those things that bring glory to God. We should pray that his name be hallowed, that his kingdom come, that his will be done. These opening petitions of the model prayer are meant to teach us that prayer is not a means of getting your will done in heaven. It is the means by which God gets his will done on earth. So we should pray about those things that bring glory to God. We should pray as if it all depends on God. Jesus warns us about rushing into God's presence with a grocery list of personal requests, but that does not mean we cannot bring our personal requests to God. We can bring our requests to God according to verses 3 and four, we can pray about our daily needs, give us each day our daily bread. We can pray about our past sins, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. We can pray about our future trials and lead us not into temptation. He has, that is God has, our past and our present and our future covered. We can bring our personal requests to him, but more importantly, the passage is telling us how to do that, friends. It is telling us to pray as if it all depends on God. For instance, verse 3 clearly indicates that we should pray with a sense that if God does not intervene, we won't eat our next meal. It all depends on God. And so, first, Jesus teaches us to pray with reverence toward God, but then in verses 5 through 8, he expands this notion of praying with dependence by telling a parable. Verses 5 through 8 teach us to pray not only then with reverence for God, but to pray with dependence upon God. There are two parables Jesus tells about prayer. In Luke 18, there's the prayer, the parable, that is, of the unjust judge. Here in Luke 11, there is the parable of the friend at midnight. Man was traveling. Nightfall overtook him. Apparently he couldn't find an inn or maybe he found an inn and there was no room. He pressed his way to the nearest village where he knew someone who lived in town, showed up at the door and following the customs of hospitality of the day, the man welcomed the men to bed down for the night. The problem arose when the traveler expressed his hunger and his host had nothing to give him to eat. It was the middle of the night, the marketplace was not open. But the man knew where he could get what he needed. 
He left his unexpected guest for a moment and went to a nearby house and knocked on the door of a friend, explained the need and made a request for several loaves of bread until the next morning. And the sleepy friend on the inside of the door says to the midnight caller, leave me alone. It's late, the door is locked. We've put a log against the door to secure it for the night. Took my energy to put that log there. I'm not touching it again until in the morning. My children are in bed with me. This is again a literal statement. The custom of the day, many small homes, the entire family lived and slept together on a raised platform. My, my children are in bed with me. I'm not climbing over them to move the log, to open the door, to give you bread. No. But the midnight caller kept knocking until the friend gets up from his sleep, not because of friendship, but just because he wants to go back to bed. And gives the caller at the door whatever bread he needs. This is the parable Jesus tells to teach the disciples how to pray. There are two questions here in the parable that you should consider. The first is not as important as the second. The, the key to the parable is the second question I want to raise, but this first question of the parable is significant to think about. First question this parable raises is this. Do you pray? Do you pray? When it is midnight in your life, how do you respond? When you are presented with a need that you don't have the resources to meet, how do you respond? When a friend comes with a challenge that you cannot address, how do you respond? Do you worry? Do you doubt? Or do you pray? There is a lesson here in this parable from this this friend who has an unexpected guest, and when a need arises that he can't meet, he instinctively seems to know where the need can be met, where the resources were found, and there is where he immediately went. When African slaves here in America began to hear the gospel and turn to Christ, many of them took their personal devotion with the Lord so seriously that they would mark out a place in the field along the trail where they would meet with God. It was a private prayer closet in an open field. And they would spend so much time on their knees in these places of prayer that the grass would stop growing there and there would be grooves in the ground where they had been on their knees so long in prayer. But this also became a point of accountability. If you were, you know, sleeping in and missing your prayer time, others walking the, the path could see it, and someone might stop you and say, hey, friend, there's grass growing on your plot of ground out yonder. <laughs> there should never be the grass of prayerlessness growing where there ought to be the deep grooves of devotion to God. Do you pray?
The bigger question of the parable is this, how do you pray? The key to the parable is found in verse 8, where Jesus says, in conclusion, I tell you, though the sleepy friend will not get up and give the midnight caller anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. He does it because of impudence. One translation renders it persistence. Boldness, another reads. The translation I grew up with renders it importunity. Literally in the Greek, the word is shamelessness. Think about it. It was the middle of the night. The midnight caller should have left the matter alone when the sleepy friend on the other side said, no, I will not get up, leave me alone. Common courtesy, mutual respect, good sense would have made him leave the matter alone, but, but he had a need. A friend had arrived, there was nothing to place before him. This was the only source he had. The marketplace was closed, it was late at night. Because this was the only place where he could get his need met. There was no shame in his game. He did not care if he woke up the entire community. He was not going to stop knocking until his friend woke up to give him what he needed. And in an amazing way, Jesus says, this is how you and I ought to pray. Shamelessly. Prideful spirit murders believing prayer. You'll never be able to pray effectively as long as you are looking for a safe, face-saving alternative for getting your needs met. You, you can't seek God's face and save your face at the same time. Could this be, in fact, why the Lord allows it to be midnight sometimes and the cover to be bare sometimes to bring us to a place of humble dependence upon him where we are forced to recognize our need of him. We're to pray shamelessly. Do not read this to mean that you got to keep banging on the door in prayer to get God's attention. To think that is to misunderstand the parable, to misunderstand prayer, and to misunderstand God. Jesus is teaching by way of contrast here. The sleepy friend is a lesson in contrast. God is the anti-hero of the story. Jesus is saying, if this sleepy friend will get up to help just to go back to sleep, how much more will the heavenly father who never slumbers nor sleep hear and answer prayer? On a hot summer afternoon, a lady decided to walk down to her friend's vegetable stand to get some grapes. She stood in the long line and watched him warmly greet and quickly serve everyone in front of her. When she finally got to the front of the line and made her request, there was no warm banter. He just took her bag and said, give me a moment as he went around back. 
and it st- the events started rolling around in her head, and she was offended. It was a hot day, a long line. She watched him graciously serve all the people in front of her, and when she gets to the front of the line, no warm banter with her. He just takes her bag and makes her wait even longer. Thinking about it, she determined she was going to have words for her friend, taking advantage of her, neglecting her when he returned. But when he returned, he returned with the most beautiful grapes she had ever seen and an apology. I'm sorry it took me so long, but I had to go around back so I could get you my best. Friend, maybe I am talking to someone here who has been in line waiting for God to answer a prayer of provision or direction or for the salvation of a loved one. I just, I want you, maybe you've watched others in line ahead of you get prayers answered and move on. I just want to say from this text, whatever you do, don't get out of line. And don't be anxious and don't be frustrated and don't doubt. God knows what is best. And in his own timing, he will give you what is best. Pray with reverence for God. Pray with dependence upon God. The rest of the text I've read to you challenges us to pray with confidence in God. Pray with confidence that God is willing and able to answer prayer. First, he says, pray with confidence that God is able. Verse 9, and I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Ask, seek, knock. These verbs are imperatives. They are commands. They are mandates. The call to prayer here is not a nice suggestion, a good idea, a helpful hint. The Lord Jesus Christ commands us to pray. The grammar of the text denotes habitual activity or continual action. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Pray with persistence, pray until something happens. Pray until it is given, until it is open, until it is found. And consider that the object of the prayer is not stated here. He doesn't tell you what to ask for, what to seek, what door to knock on. He is trying to say that you can, you can pray about anything and everything. There's nothing too small for God to care about. There is nothing too big for God to handle. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege it is to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pains we bear. That line is a part of my personal theology at this point. Theology of needless pains. I've grown up enough, I guess, to accept the fact that some pain is inevitable in life. I'll accept that, but I don't want to have to face needless pains. If it's pain I don't have to endure, I don't want to, but... Oh, what needless pains we bear, all because we do not carry. Not some things or certain things or specific things or special things or spiritual things, but everything to God in prayer. Jesus says that if you pray about it, God will respond. 
with gift, welcome, and discovery. In fact, he affirms in verse 10, everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Is Jesus saying here that God will answer every prayer? Well, no, God will not answer every prayer the way you want him to. And thank God for that. There are things I have prayed about that seem to be so urgent and important at the time. Now I can look back and see how trivial and foolish some of those same urgent things were. And I praise God for being the God who, who knows how to open doors that no one can close and close doors that no one can open. But yes, God does answer prayer. One commentator rightly notes here that there is no such thing as answered prayer. Even if it is not the thing that you request or desire, if it is an outright denial, it is still the answer of the love and wisdom of God. So we should pray with confidence that God is able to answer prayer, and we should pray with confidence that God is willing to answer prayer. Jesus raises hypothetical scenario in verse 11 and 12. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? The assumed answer to these questions is, no, no father, no real father, no good father would do this. This would be child abuse, child neglect, child endangerment. A good father would not give his son a serpent instead of a fish would not give his son a scorpion instead of an egg. Jesus draws this conclusion then in verse 13. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children. Wait. Verse 1 says Jesus is talking to his disciples. And here in verse 13, he calls them evil. They have trusted him and they have followed him, but he calls them evil. It's a reminder to us. Even when you run to the cross and throw yourself on the mercy of God and receive the forgiveness of God by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, there is still the ongoing work of sanctification that needs to take place in all of us. There is remaining sin that God needs to cleanse us of. But he says even though you still have evil that needs to be worked out of you, you still know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more then will the Father in heaven give, Matthew 7, verse 11, give good gifts? Here, a specific good gift, the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. G. Calvin McCutcheon, for many years, served the Mount Zion Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He got news that one of his members was sick and hospitalized in Oklahoma City. He got in his car and hit the highway to head to Oklahoma City to check on his member. On the way, his car Got a flat tire, 
he make this, made his way to the side of the road and went to the nearest call box. When he heard the operator's voice on the other side, his, his anxiety grew and he quickly just began to blurt out his location. But he said the operator kept talking over him to get his attention, and he would not stop talking. He began reading signs that he could see nearby, but she kept talking over him. He started describing landmarks that he could see, but she kept talking louder and louder to get his attention until finally he stopped talking and let her speak. And she said to him, sir, with all due respect, I have a computer on this end. I already know where you are. Just tell me what you need. Wherever you find yourself this morning, friend, the Lord knows where you are. Because of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king, this morning you can tell him what you need in believing prayer with confidence that he is willing to hear and able to answer. We thank you for your instructions this morning from the scriptures, and we thank you, Lord, that your bloody cross and empty tomb makes possible for us to live out the promises and blessings and privileges which you've taught us in this text. Would you humble us? Would you forgive us for our self-sufficiency that would take life and our future and our goals and our plans in our own hands? Would you humble us and teach us to live contingently, to live in such a way where seeking your face is, is a greater priority to us than saving our own. Teach us to pray with confidence that you are a good father a faithful father, a wise father, an able father, strong father. Teach us to pray according to your will in the name of Jesus Christ, in faith and for your glory.